Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are uh, recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. In the Buddha, his teaching and the fellowship most excellent, we take our refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other transcendent virtues, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Mm. Quiet friend who has come so far, Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like, such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water, speak, I am. This is a talk about faith. Mm. about faith in things recognized, but not yet seen. Faith in the Dharma and in our capacity to practice it. Faith in our original rightness, original perfection. So you know how I often say we have to want to be free more than we want to be right. For this talk, I'd like to say we have to want to be right more than we want to be flawed, more than we want or believe that we're broken. We want, we have to want to be within our right, which is wholeness. And to remind ourselves when we forget that we have in fact always been of one piece 
that we may go through periods in our lives when we feel broken or divided or not quite with it, but that we're always, always whole, already whole, already right. And it's not like, you know, any of us sets out to feel broken. We don't decide to think, well, there's something wrong with me. But, but the feeling, the belief comes up. Something happens in our lives and we think there's something wrong. And maybe we don't think it overtly, but we feel it. We feel it inside. We feel that something's off. And if we're not really in touch, we may think that what's off is outside, right? that it's someone else's fault. And so when we don't feel right, we lash out. And I think this type of misunderstanding is what's behind much, if not all, of the violence we see in the world, right? not knowing how to deal with the hurt that we feel we hurt someone else. So much of the, that hatred, that harm, comes from the unbearable tenderness, unbearable softness of being. Because I've said before, I really think that being human requires infinite tenderness. And that's unbearable at times, right? to be that soft, to be that vulnerable. And fortunately, we have artists and we have teachers that tell us, that show us how to do that, how to live. And so in this gorgeous poem by Rilke, let this darkness be a bell tower. He's essentially offering us instructions for living. A good art is not decoration, it's not entertainment. It points the way. How to live a life. Or it rebels and says, no, it's not that way. Not this. Good art, like spiritual practice, shows you first that the way that you've been living, that we've been living, is sometimes a bit tight, a bit limited when it comes to really being happy and peaceful and fulfilled in our lives. It shows us when we've gone to sleep a little bit, you know, when things feel a bit dull, not because things are dull, but because our seeing has become a bit blurry. And so good art, like practice, sharpens our seeing and therefore our living. And then it asks, how do we best live together? How do we create more space within and around one another? 
how do we live and how do we let others live? And so here, Rilke says, quiet friend who has come so far. Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. I mean, he just gets right into it. We know, as practitioners, we know we have to be quiet in order to see, in order to hear, in order to feel. But notice he's saying we have to be quiet. He's not saying we have to be calm. That will come with time. Because people think this. They come into practice and they think, well, then my mind needs to be, to be calm. It needs to be quiet. And sometimes it just isn't. Right? So this, even this quiet that he speaks of is not the quiet of silence. I think of it as attention. So that when we don't feel calm, our partner breaks up with us, we lose our job, our best friend gets cancer, or we get sick and we don't know what's going on. That we can see that, that we can feel that, that we can be in that. I just wrote about equanimity um, last week. And I said, you know, equanimity isn't flatlining. It's not indifference, it's not passivity, it's not resignation. And it certainly doesn't mean not feeling sad or disappointed or scared or heartbroken. It means feeling what we feel, but not getting tossed out of the boat the boat of our, of our awareness, our, our being, the centeredness of our being. And so that image that I often invoke of strapping yourself to the mast so you can ride out the waves when you're in the middle of a storm. When life is hard, when it is challenging, you strap yourself in to ride it out. I said, you know, a friend gave me that image many years ago. And she was referring to that story of Ulysses or Odysseus coming back from the Trojan War. And he had to cross the ocean and he knew, I mean, it was lore, that passing by the sirens' islands, the sailors would die. They would be lured by their song and they would crash on the rocks. And essentially, the sirens would make dinner out of them. And so knowing this, Ulysses says to his sailors, strap me to the mast, tie me to the mast of the boat, and plug your ears, and ignore my orders. Whatever I say to you, as we pass the islands, do not listen to me. And sure enough, as, as soon as they get close, they hear the song. He hears the song because the other sailors can't hear it. And he starts begging his men to let him go so he can jump up the boat into the waves. And they ignore him. And they are not affected by the song. And so they sail without incident. And it's interesting that in the story, he chooses to hear 
in one version of the story, it's Cersei, uh, Cersei, Cersei, tells him um, what the sirens will do and says, but if you want to hear the song, if you want to know what it is, just tell your sailors to tie you up. And so being equanimous doesn't mean that there are no waves. It means you ride the waves without falling off the boat. And sometimes that is what's needed, you know, to stand on deck and to look, to, 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 to gaze at the oncoming storm and to be so grounded in yourself that you don't lose yourself. Or even if you do lose yourself, that you're able to recover. That is faith. That is faith, you know, to, to have the trust that we can outlast the storm. Delko Kiense Rinpoche was one of the great Tibetan teachers in the 20th century. Um, he lists four uh, types of faith. And this might, I don't actually know if, his, if it's his teaching specifically or if it's a, if it's a classical teaching in Tibetan Buddhism, but, but he lists four, four kinds of faith. Clear faith, Longing faith, confident faith, and irreversible faith. So clear faith is when we see wonderful qualities of the Buddha or the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. We see them in a, in a teacher. We see them in another practitioner. We see them in someone we admire. It's clear or another translation of it is bright faith. And we see this in someone else, we see their example, and we think, I want that. And there's a text, an old text, called The Questions of King Melinda. And the monk, Nagasena, says to the king, you know, imagine that there's a group of people and they're, they're lined up um, on the shore. And there's a, an overflowing stream, and they want to go to the other side, and in Buddhism, the, the image of the, of the other shore is Prajnaparamita, the shore of enlightenment. Whereas this shore is the shore of delusion. And so they want to go to the other side, but they're afraid. And so they stand there and they look at the stream and they look at each other, but they don't really do anything. And then one of them comes forward and he assesses the situation. And they take a running leap and they jump and they make it to the other side. And the others see this and they say, oh, oh, it can be done. And then they jump as well. Of course, this is what a bodhisattva does. Oh, it can be done, we think, and then we go about doing it. So we could, we could say that this is faith by proxy. But it's still a little tenuous because it depends on some outward stimulus, outward example. 
Yeah, so, so many times people would come to the monastery and they would be all gung-ho about their practice. And then their period of residency would end. They would leave, they would go home, and then everything would fall apart. They just couldn't bring themselves to the cushion. You know, they just, they just, without that, that container holding them, everything kind of petered out. And so you need the next step which is longing faith, right? So seeing those qualities, seeing the wisdom and compassion, seeing clarity and kindness in another, we give rise to the desire, to the aspiration to have that for ourselves, to be that ourselves so that we can be of benefit. I've told the story of when I first realized that Daito Roshi that I wanted him to be my teacher. Uh, watching him be just, just, just how he was completely unselfconscious. I mean, you know, he's just ambling about, you know, his pants are like halfway down his butt. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I want that. I want that kind of unselfconsciousness. I recognized something in him that he was so, he was so at ease with himself. And I remember thinking very early on, I want that. I want what he has. And so this is faith by aspiration. Then there's confident faith. Right, so now here we, we begin to develop the confidence that we're able to do this ourselves, that we're able to live from these good qualities that we have seen in another, that we're able to have practice patience, that we're able to be generous and not stingy, not afraid of losing. We, we know that we can cultivate wisdom, even if it's slowly, And the thing is, we know this because we know it is who we are. Some part of us knows that. We may not know that consciously for quite a while. But as Master Dogen said, if we weren't a person of suchness, we couldn't realize the person of suchness. Right? We cannot become what we're not. So no matter how hard I try, no matter how, how much I practice or how hard I work, you know, I'm not going to become an oak in this lifetime or a panther. Well, that would be really cool. That would be really cool. I'm not going to become an astrophysicist or a concert pianist. Not this time around. But I can fully be me. I can fully be Suisse, be Vanessa. I can completely become myself by slowly seeing and working through what gets in the way. And by slowly seeing and working through what affirms Suisse, what gives Suisse life. And this is very much an active process and a process of discovery because you can think 
you're going in a certain direction, you are a certain person, and then life shows you <laughs> something else. And you can fight that, or you can flow with it. I recommend flowing. Confident faith is knowing that wisdom really is um, available, that it really is within our reach in this life. It's knowing that we can practice the Dharma, that we can realize the Dharma, that we can live the Dharma. And the thing is that the more we practice, the more we know this. And the more we know this, the truer, the truer it is. So this is faith that renews itself. It's, it's beautiful, in fact, how it works that way. And finally, there's irreversible faith. No matter how long the path, no matter how difficult it looks, how difficult it feels, we know, we know we're going to travel it because we can't imagine living any other way, not anymore. It doesn't mean we don't have doubts. We might. Doubts might come up. In fact, most likely they will. You do this for long enough, they will at some point. But we don't let them stop us. You know, just like being fearless. It's not that we don't feel fear, it's that we're not stopped by it. She does that mantra as, that says that I really like, uh, fear is the mind killer. I will face my fear, I will let it pass through me. And really, if you think about it, you could replace that with anger. You could replace that with jealousy. You could replace that with um, I was thinking discouragement, but, but it needs to be a stronger word, I think. Giving up, hopelessness, let's say, hopelessness. Hopelessness is the mind killer. I will face that hopelessness. I will let it pass through me, right? Because that's the only way that you're liberated from it. You can't go around it, you can't avoid it, you can't pretend it's not there. I mean, you can, but the only way to really be free of it is you have to move through it, or it has to move through you. And so this is faith that cannot be stopped. We cannot be stopped, but we are not daunted by how challenging the path seems, by how many beings there are in the world to save, by the fact that there's another tragedy in the news. As my good friend Yeshe says, samsara, you can't, you can't, how does she say it? She said, you can't get rid of samsara, or you can't stop samsara. You know, it just, it's, it, it comes with the human condition. 
but you can be liberated within it. Remember, within it. You don't transcend to some other heaven, to some other place. So this is faith that cannot be stopped. But you know, I mean, really in the end, you only need one kind of faith. You only need good enough faith. Like faith just good enough to get you going. Because if you do that, and then you just keep going, you know, you keep practicing, the rest takes care of itself. And you might need a nudge, you might need a reminder, you might need to pick up a book, you know, to, to inspire yourself, you may need to listen to a talk, you may need to pick up the phone and say to someone, remind me, why am I doing this? That's okay. That's okay. We all need that at some point or another. But just a good enough faith to get you going, to get that spark, to, to, to ignite that first spark. And then slowly you just feed that fire. And you can, you can start a fire with the tiny, tiniest little teepee, <laughs> the tiniest little configuration. You don't need very much. I mean, we know a, a spark can raise to the ground, you know, acres and acres. So you don't need very much. I mean, that is the power of fire. That's the power of aspiration. And it can get buried. It absolutely can get buried. You know, you can stop sitting, you can forget why it is that you were doing this, you can think it's too much trouble, you can think it's too hard. But if at some point something happens, or you hear something, or you're just like, enough, and then you start over, there it is again. like that the Native American tribe, which I cannot remember the name of at the moment, that would, that would travel with a small piece of coal, live coal. And imagine, you know, how you would need to do that, how you would need to protect it and carry it from place to place so that wherever they went, they would have fire. I mean, that's why Prometheus, right? I think it was, was, was cast or Perseus? No, Prometheus. Well, one of the two was cast from Olympus for giving fire to humans. That is how powerful it is. So you just need that good enough faith to begin. Quiet friend who has come so far. Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. How far do you have to travel to find yourself? All the way. All the way to the end and then keep going. And we have no way of knowing how long it's going to take. We have no way of knowing if we'll get there. 
but we trust that the path is true, that others have walked it, and we trust that in time, we will get to where we're going. Not knowing where that is, we, ha we have faith that we will get there. And you know, it's actually not that breathing makes more space, you know, so I thought of this line, it's that it just, it shows you the space that was always there. Right, so when I ask what is breath, what I'm really asking is how large are you? How much space do you occupy? And I don't mean explain that to me. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I'm asking that you be breath completely until there's nothing else. And there, live what breath is. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you, the bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. I mean, it's such a beautiful line and it's so difficult to believe that that darkness, when we're steeped in that darkness and it's so dark we can't even see our hand in front of us. I mean, we have to draw every bit of practice that we have, every bit of hunger and longing and aspiration to just not give up. I thought of that Leonard Cohen song, you know, Anthem, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering, he says. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, right? So forget about your practice being perfect. Forget about you being perfect. That's a given. That's a given. That's not something you have to work at. What you have to work at is remembering. So if you're buried in dark darkness, I mean, Rilke's, he's, he's saying it, he's saying it. He's saying, let that darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. Let that bell ring so loud, so large, that the battering becomes your strength. Mr. Cohen, you have to let the light in. Because there's no darkness without it, just like there's no light without darkness. And that's the thing. You, you can't have that one without the other. And so when you can't see past your own pain, I hope that knowing that, remembering that can be just a little bit of help. You can't have darkness without some light. And so you have to be the bell ringing in the darkness of your mind. You have to be the bell until there is no you, no bell, no sound. What is that like?
move back and forth into the change, what is it like, such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. You know, I kept thinking this was a Rumi line. I, I looked it up. I couldn't find it anywhere, but it sounds like Rumi, doesn't it? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. It's exactly something he would have said. Right? So again, you become the bell completely. You become the darkness completely. You become your pain completely. And that is why equanimity isn't doing nothing. It's not just sitting back and taking it. That's why I was writing that it's the first sentence of the serenity prayer, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, balanced by Angela Davis's rephrasing. I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. So Rilke isn't telling us to just accept our pain. That's the first step. He's saying, do something with it. Turn it into sound. If you're a bell ringing, turn it into light. Turn it into something you can do something with. You understand? So accept and then change. Accept change because it really kind of happens simultaneously. Or sometimes you have to spend, that's not true. Sometimes you have to spend a bit of time in the acceptance so that then you can see how you step into the change, how you move back and forth into the change. There was an article in the New York Times about a pianist who died last uh, year, at the end of last year, of cancer. And as he was dying, he uh, spent time really um, perfecting and then recording a particular piece, Schubert's Piano Trio, number two, in E flat. I do not know the piece. Um, but it apparently centers around the funeral march. And there's one passage where the notation, Schubert's notation, says that the strings, the violin and the cello, should play triple forte, fortissimo, very, very loud. And then, when you can't get any louder, the next instruction is to crescendo. How? How do you do that? How do you go as far as you can go and then keep going? You know, when Jimon, the head liturgist at the monastery, when she trained me to, to do the inkin, to do the run on the inkin for the bows at the end, usually at the end of the day or at the end of the talk. Um, you, you, I think most of you are familiar with, with the run. You know, it starts slow, ching, 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 and then it starts to speed up, ching, ching, ching. It gets faster and faster and louder, and then it crescendos 
leading into the teachers and the Sangha's bows, three bows. And as she was training me, she said, the run should have such energy that at the end, you can do nothing but bow. And I love that. I was really into that. And so I practiced doing that. I just put everything I had into it. And <laughs> then I caught the teachers smiling as they looked at me doing this. <laughs> I think my whole body was like levitating, you know, as I was going <laughs> at the Yinkin. And I'm sure I was making faces. You know, I really frown when I concentrate. So I probably looked like, you know, the most like, serious thing was happening. Uh, so Shugen, Shugen cracked the, the smile a few times. <laughs> but that was the energy, you know, by, by, by about after a year of, of doing that regularly. I mean, I could do that run like nobody's business. And you could feel, you know, the, the, the time when you, you sort of like you missed it or you were, you know, just tired or whatever. You, you could feel it, you could, and, and you know, Jimin was a, was a dancer and she was a choreographer, so she knew, she understood sound and she understood rhythm and she understood the power of both. And so when that was in there, you felt it, you felt that it was just kind of like, eh, okay. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. The uncontainable night, I mean, it really is the place of not knowing, right? In the deep dark, you can't see, which means you can't plan, you can't measure, you can't compare. You can't say, oh, it's this and not this. Oh, that was a good period of sitting, that, that sucked. You can't do that. You can't say, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how it's going to turn out. I mean, you can try, but it doesn't work. So what we can do is have faith, is to trust and step. At the crossroad of our senses, all there is is mystery. And the meaning there that Rilke is speaking of is not definition. He's speaking of reality. He's saying when you stop thinking, when you stop measuring, when you stop knowing, reality will show you the way. That's what I always say. Just get very quiet. You will know. People tell me, you know, I don't know whether to leave this job. I don't know whether to stay in this relationship. I don't know whether to go live at the monastery. I don't know. And I say, you do. Just wait, be patient, get really quiet and listen, because you do know. Let reality show you. And that's why Rilke ends, you know, if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. I mean, the world never actually ceases to hear you, but it, sometimes it feels that way. And so to remember where you are and who you are, he says, say to the silent earth, I flow. 
He's saying, be that flow. Tell the rushing water, that stream that you've been trying so hard to cross, and it is none other than you, say to that rushing water, I am. That's it. That's it. That's all we need. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you'd like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you. <laughs>